0: Well, good evening, all. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, the gospel of Mark. And as has been advertised, uh, these lessons that I'll be presenting have to do with influence. And I really appreciated what Eric had to say this morning about the influence that Jesus has on our lives. And then, by extension, the influence that he wants us to have on the lives of others. And this lesson that we're going to do together is hear from this, this time in Jesus' life where he comes in contact with a man who was demon-possessed. This man's life was really a disaster, lots of difficulty, and I sometimes will call this sermon just Jesus and the Gerasene demoniac, a man from the land of the Gerasenes who was possessed by a demon. And Jesus has an interaction with him. There's a lot of things to learn from this time uh, and this story. But what I want to focus on is how Jesus was an influence on this man. uh, And really just how Jesus won souls. I'm somebody that would like to get better at that. I'd like to get better at human interaction and talking to people about the kingdom of God and helping them. Through their troubles and showing them how God can heal them and help them. Um, But sometimes I don't do a very good job of that. And I think it's important that we from time to time just watch Jesus do this in these in these times that we have in Scripture to see how the wonderful counselor counseled people. Uh, He was the greatest teacher that ever lived, and he changed lives all the time. Before we get into Mark chapter 5, though. I want to put it kind of in its context. Uh, Mark deals pretty heavily with demon possession. If you go back to chapter one, uh, Mark tells a whole bunch of times where Jesus interacted with people who were possessed by demons. Uh, look at Mark one, verse 27, uh, actually starting about verse 23, one twenty-three says, just then there was a man in their synagogues with an unclean spirit And he cried out saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now, in this first scene, Jesus is in a synagogue, which would have looked not terribly different than this room. Uh, the men on one side, the women on the other. It's a place where the people of God would gather and worship. Um, and you kind of always know which person in the audience is going to all start and start screaming, and they, they're the one with the demon. Like, you're not surprised by that, right? Uh, But that's what happens in this synagogue on this occasion. Somebody starts crying out, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus casts out the demon. Whenever he does this in these stories, he tells the demons to be quiet. Be quiet. Don't talk about that. I've always wondered why that is. I think there's a couple of theories. Uh, One. You know, you've ever heard the saying that all public there's no such thing as bad publicity. All publicity is good publicity. I don't know that Jesus wanted the demons to be talking about him. Uh, we're going to see in a little bit here that because of that, maybe not because of that, but people begin to link Jesus to the demons and say that's how he had the power to do it because he was on their side. Uh, the other part might just be Jesus was trying to reveal who he was without that kind of word getting out yet. People didn't understand what it meant that the Messiah was here and the kingdom had come and maybe the zealots would rise up and fight Rome if, if he didn't get to the part about my kingdom's not of this world and my kingdom's not going to fight this way. Whatever the reasons are, you'll see this happening over and over again. Go to chapter three. There's a couple of times I'm skipping over here when we get to chapter three in Mark around verse 22, it says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying to saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons and he called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Now, when these Pharisees and scribes begin to say uh, he's possessed by Beelzebul, that word Beelzebul, if you trace it back into the Old Testament, that was a king uh, or I'm sorry, one of the Israelite kings went and sent word to worship that God. He was the God of Ekron, literally meant Lord of the Flies. Um, but somewhere along the line in Jewish language, they took that God of Ekron Beelzebul and gave it to the prince or the ruler of the demons, essentially Satan. And now they're saying the reason that Jesus can cast out demons is he's doing it by the power of the devil, which I guess made some sense. And pe- perhaps people were swayed by that argument. So the way Jesus deals with that in verse 23 is really first logically He just quotes Abraham Lincoln, right? Uh, A house divided against itself cannot stand. By the way, I had a mom get mad at me for saying that one time. She said, you're teaching my kids things and you're confusing them. Look, Abraham Lincoln quoted Jesus here. Uh, Just so nobody's unclear about that. Um, Jesus essentially says something like this. Nobody ever won a war. By having the general go around and shooting his own men. That doesn't happen. If you're trying to conquer something, you don't divide yourself. Satan is not casting out Satan. That makes no sense. But this teaching about a house divided against itself cannot stand is so very important for nations like ours and churches and anybody really that wants to be unified. But Jesus moves to a different argument after that logic. He says there in verse uh, 26, or excuse me, verse 27, that no one can go into a strong man's house and steal his stuff unless he first ties the strong man up and binds him so then he can go in and take his goods. You see what he's claiming there? If I'm casting out demons and it's not by the power of the devil, the reason I'm able to do it is I'm stronger than Satan. He's out there on the porch, tied up, and I can go in and spoil his goods anytime I want. Which has a practical application. Anyone who is not a Christian, that's because they've not realized that they can walk out of the devil's house anytime they want. He's tied up on the porch. Anyone who stays inside of the devil's kingdom, the devil's house, does so by their own volition. It's not because they're incapable of walking out. Jesus made two claims about casting out demons. This is one of them. I'm stronger than Satan. The other one is in Luke chapter 11, verse 20. He said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Casting out demons, according to Zechariah 13, was part of how they would know the kingdom was there. And so Jesus continues to do these miracles and continues to tell the demons to be quiet when they come out of whoever he cast them out of. Now, go ahead to chapter four. I'm going to show you what happens right before this, this story where Jesus goes to the land of the Gerasenes. Chapter four you might notice in your Bible, if you have red letters, that there's a lot of red letters in this chapter. Jesus is doing some preaching. I want you to see what he was actually preaching. Verse 3. I've always wanted to start a sermon like this. And do you notice how Jesus starts the sermon in verse 3? Listen! The sower went out to sow. My version says, listen to this. Now, I don't know that Brit will ever do that, where he'll get up and just say, listen, and then preach for a bit. But if I preach for a bit and then say, look at verse nine, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What would you think I was interested in? Starting a parable with listen and ending it with he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Why would I going to pay attention? One of the major things that Jesus is teaching in this chapter, even in the parable themselves, the parable itself, is that listening to God is the most important thing any human being can do. Listen with your ears. If you have ears to hear, let them hear. Notice how he keeps saying this. Skip down to verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Next verse. He was saying to them, take Care what you listen to. So this is really a chapter where Jesus preaches a lot about listening, listening, be careful how you listen. Now at the end of that day, skip ahead in your Bible to verse 35. Imagine hearing all that preaching about listening. And then in verse 35, it says on that day, When evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up. And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is a fascinating scene in my mind. You see that question they ask at the end of the chapter, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The next time this happens is in Matthew 14, around verse 33. And next time it happens, they know who he is. That time they worship him and they they say, this is the son of God. But this time they're still learning some things. Now, let's kind of pay attention to the story here. They sail out into the Sea of Galilee. Jesus falls asleep on the cushion. Makes sense. He's been busy. And these sailors, many of these disciples were fishermen who were used to that Sea of Galilee. They begin to panic because some storm comes up and begins to dump water into the boat. And they think they're going to die. Now, question. Question. If you're on a boat that you think is going to sink and Jesus is asleep on your boat, what are you going to do? I think I'd do what they did. I'd wake them up. So they wake them up and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus does two things. First thing, he looks around at the storm and he says, shh. And I wish I could have seen this. Everything stopped. It became, as Mark says, perfectly still. You ever been in the ocean or on a lake when the wind was up, when there was a storm going on? Nobody can do that. Nobody. But you see, Jesus was teaching something everywhere he went. That this one who created the world, who rules the universe, when he would speak to creation it would listen. When he would speak to the demons, they would obey. Do you know the only part of God's creation that doesn't listen? It's the one with ears to hear. Human beings. We don't pay attention. So what he does next is he looks at his disciples and he asks this question. Why are you afraid? I know, I know. There's water in the boat, Jesus. And there's this, oh wait. There's no storm anymore. That's a weird question to ask, though. What do you mean, why are we afraid? And then how about this? When he says to these guys, do you still have no faith? Why not give them credit for a little bit of faith? Again, they woke up Jesus. They knew who to wake up. But he says to them, you have no faith. Help me with this. Faith comes by faith hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? How could Jesus say they had no faith? Well, notice back in verse 35, he had said to them that evening, let's go to the other side of the lake. He didn't say, let's go to the middle of the lake and drown. Like he he said where they were going. He told them the destination and he was peaceful enough about it to fall asleep. But they weren't listening that day. Do you think we ever do similarly to God? We look around at the storms going on and we begin to freak out and we begin to call on God and say, God, don't you care that we're perishing down here? Do you think God ever might want to say, did you know I've already said something about that? I told you what's going to happen. Why is it that you have no faith? Why are you so afraid? And let me be clear. I'm not saying that God's not the one to go to when we're afraid and when we need help. But what we need to do with our God is pay close attention to what he's already promised and what he's already said. Because there's so much that can give us comfort in this life if we'll just listen the first time. All right, I have a question. Before we get to chapter 5 here, why would Jesus take this trip with these guys? Why get them on a boat, sail all the way across the Sea of Galilee, just to, it looks like, get back in the boat and come back across like a day later? It doesn't seem like they're there very long, but why take this trip? Maybe he needed the rest. Maybe he knew the storm was coming. Or maybe there's a bigger reason why he took them on this journey. So I'll come back to that at the end. Let's read the story now. Mark chapter five, verse one. They came to the other side of the sea in the country of the Gerasenes, and he got out of the boat, or when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? Then he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country, Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. Now there were, uh, they, the demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission and coming out, the unclean spirit entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the, reported it in the city and in the country, And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. He did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. You know, growing up when I would hear this story preached or when I'd hear this text taught on the only thing I can remember us ever discussing or the preacher ever saying had something to do with the demons and where demons wanted to be and just kind of all kinds of questions about the spiritual realm. And maybe there's some important lessons there, but I want you to just get into the story and imagine you were on the boat. What do you see here? First lesson. Jesus teaches us in this story that there's no place for fear in evangelism. You know, this story would have sounded very different if I was in it. When this man who's naked with chains hanging off of his wrists, who gashes himself with stones and lives in the tombs, when he begins to run down the bank and I realize That this is not like the welcoming committee from the land of the garrisons with like a fruit basket. That's not what's happening here. And he's yelling your name. Jesus, we know who you are. This would read something like, And Andy and his friends got back into the boat and paddled furiously (laughs) until they reached the other side. You ever had somebody run at you like that? Like really? You've been out walking somewhere? Somebody not in their right mind comes right at you. And your first thought is, this is a great contact. (laughs) I'm going to talk to them about the Lord. You know, Jesus was never afraid of men. But if ever there was a time, this might have been one of them. I I told you I was going to go to this text. Keep your finger here. I'll be right back. But go to Philippians 1 just for a moment. You remember that verse we read this morning that said that we were to conduct ourselves In a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 27. Philippians 1.27. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, he's going to say three things that make our conduct worthy. Any of the opposite of these three things means that we're not walking worthy of the gospel. Here are the three things. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are, number one, standing firm in one spirit. Number two, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And number three, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you and that too from God. All right. Here is conduct worthy of the gospel. Number one, it was actually, these were all words that were used in different ways in Jesus' time. This first one about standing firm with one spirit was a word that would be used of a soldier or a group of soldiers. They would draw a line in the sand and they would not retreat. They would stand firm together in one spirit to do what they needed to do. The second thing, Striving together for the faith of the gospel could be used either of a crew or just one athlete who went out in the Olympic Games and their muscles would all strive together to reach the finish line. This kind of unity and activity corporately as the church is what makes our conduct worthy of the gospel. But look at the third thing. In no way alarmed. That was an equestrian word. They would use that word to describe like a horse that would get spooked and throw its rider off because something distracted it. Growing up, I wasn't afraid of much. I would do all kinds of crazy things. If you go back to Southern California with me, I'll show you the cliffs I used to jump off of. I'll take you through the canyons and the... Sewer pipes that I used to crawl back into as far as I could until you couldn't see anything. I'd even go up to girls that were way out of my league and say like, I think you're pretty. And they would say, I I don't want to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I was afraid of? I was afraid of talking to people about the Lord. And I wish I could go back. Because The negative response that I would get to, hey, I think you're pretty, and they would shut me down, that said something about me. It didn't bother me. It just was what it was. But you know, if somebody says no to talking about the Lord, that has nothing to do with me at all. I don't know why I'd be afraid of that. But in this story, Jesus shows us that he just wasn't afraid to engage with people. Second lesson similar to that is... Jesus believed there was no case too hard. Again, would this guy been at the top of your list? I'll tell you, Eric said something like this this morning about when he would go knock on doors in Brentwood. But I've found that some of the people that are hardest to bring to the Lord are people that I thought were going to be the easiest. You meet them and they're good, kind people. They they don't get drunk every night. They, they treat their kids right. I mean, they're good, upstanding citizens. And you look at them and you think, they make a great Christian. All they need is Jesus. And so you talk to them. Turns out, they know they're a pretty good person. With all kinds of things going their way. And they don't really need a Savior. It's not that we don't try to reach them. But you know who I found the easiest to reach? People that I'm most uncomfortable with, because of how difficult their lives are. And yet Jesus engages with this man. Lesson number three: I learned in this story that Jesus had extraordinary compassion on people. Look down there around verse uh, fifteen, when when the the people come out to the field after the herdsmen go get them. It says they observe the man who'd been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind. Where do you get the clothes? Like, you think the guy was pulling a roller bag out of the tombs coming down the hill? Like, this guy didn't have any luggage. I like to think that this guy was sitting there wearing Jesus' tunic. Peter sandals, and Andrew Sash. I mean, here's a guy with real needs. Yes, they want to teach him about the Lord, but sometimes we meet people that we want to teach the gospel to, and the fact of the matter is, their life is so distraught that they have real needs in their life. We are foolish to not care about that. But I don't think that's the most extraordinary piece of compassion in the story. Go back up to verse 8. You see in verse Eight, when he says, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? Now, I understand that the demon answers the question. But I don't know if Jesus was talking to the demon or the man. Just for a minute, imagine the man. And the question that comes from Jesus is, what is your name? When was the last time you think the guy heard that? Everywhere he'd ever gone, everybody tried to chain him up, shut him down, mistreat him. You know that person at work that everybody avoids? The one that nobody wants to talk to or eat lunch with? Because when they get close, like, they get hurt. You've heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people, right? What would it be like if God's people, not because they look at anybody like a project, but just because God's people cared, wanted to actually know people? They, They thought to say the one thing that some people never thought to say. Who are you? What's your name? What's your story? Where do you come from? And really willing to listen and have a conversation. Do you know how many people walk into church buildings week after week to visit someplace and they leave and people have said, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. But do you know how many people will come back to a place because they found people there that said, who are you? What's your name? What's your story? Why are you here? We need to learn to think different about everyone around us. And I see that in this story. You know, Teresa Kircheville, Brent's stepmother. I got to move with Barry and Teresa to Arkansas when I was just like 20 years old. We were new in the neighborhood. And one day she looked out and saw a moving truck out in the cul-de-sac. And she said, Andy, let's bake some brownies. And I didn't really know how to do that. So she did it. (laughs) But we took the brownies over to these people's house and she knocked on the door and they opened the door. And she said, I I just wanted to welcome you to the neighborhood. I'm Teresa. This is Andy. He's living with us. It's a long story. (laughs) But um, just wanted to say that we're glad you're here. And the people, I'll never forget this. The people said, you know, you're the only one that's come over here and thought to say hello to us. And Teresa said, well, I just wanted you to know that we're kind of new here, too. And we found a good grocery store over here around the corner. We like this bank over here on this place. And if you're ever looking for a good church, there's this good church over here. Guess what? They came. And my preacher training program started off by learning something from the preacher's wife that I never learned from Barry. Sometimes you just got to see people different. Now, I learned from Barry how to teach him. But I learned from Teresa that saying things like, what is your name and who are you and where are you from can go a long way. Lesson number, wherever I'm at, four. Lesson number four. Stay with me on this one. I learned from this story that Jesus cared more about people than he did pigs. 2,000 pigs died. To save this guy. And there's a lot of people that don't like that. Now, here's the point. I know some Christians that will stop at the side of the road for any nasty animal that's still wiggling <laughs> and like pick it up and dust it off and bring it home and nurse it back to health. It's extraordinary. But some of those same people have never once, never once thought about a person's soul. And that ought not be. This thing about these pigs might be a double judgment. I I don't know all that's going on here, but I, I kind of think there's something happening kind of behind the scenes of this story. I understand that there are Gentiles in the land of the Gerasenes and the Decapolis, but there are also Jews up in this area. And I think what you've got going on here is probably like a black market pig thing. Some of these Jews got bacon in their mouth and they realized how good it was. And they've got herdsmen growing these pigs. And now all of a sudden their cover's blown because every other godly person would run away. But now they know there's a prophet here. Just cross-examine this with every other time, every other time Jesus went to a city and cast out a demon, they would drag him into the city and say, we got a ton more people in here like this. These people said, get lost. We don't want you around. They were hiding something. We need to understand that sometimes people have their own bootlegging operation. They don't want to talk about Jesus because there's something in their life they don't want to change. But Jesus kills 2,000 pigs to deliver this man. Was that worth it? I'm weird. I looked up how much 2,000 pigs is worth. If you got pigs today and sold them on the market, if you cut them up into pieces and sold them, it would be something like $350,000. But I think black market pigs are probably more expensive. Uh, So I asked a lady one time who raised fair pigs what a blue ribbon pig goes for. 2,000 blue ribbon pigs go for over a million too. What if God said that? What if God said I'll, I'll deliver a soul for $10,000. Would you guys start selling stuff? Do you have people you love enough that if it was $10,000, you'd spend it to save their soul? Sometimes we don't think souls are worth our time or our efforts. I'd rather watch Netflix tonight than reach out and teach somebody. I'll never forget this. I was a young boy. We were having a meeting at the little church I was a part of. Something came up about an ad that was running in a Navy newspaper there in San Diego. The ad said, we're a church over here trying to do what's right. There's a man sitting right here that said, we need to take that ad out of that paper. It costs too much money and we're using the Lord's money wrong. Another guy over here raised his hand and said, I just wanted everybody to know I saw that ad and it's why I came here. And this man said, I quote, I don't care about that. That's too much money. What are we doing? What are we doing? Building our buildings. Paying our preachers. If it's not about souls, then we don't understand who Jesus was. Next lesson. Jesus believed in at-home evangelism. Look there at verse 17, and this is one of the saddest things in Scripture to me. Verse 17 says, as they were beginning to leave, after they implored Jesus to leave, verse 18 says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed was begging, was imploring him that he might accompany him. Now think about it. Behind this man are all these people who've mistreated him everyone who never understood him, everyone who had chained him up. And now he's met the one man and the one group of men that have been kind to him in his life. And he's tugging on their shirts and hanging on to their legs and saying, please, can I come with you? I don't want to live here anymore. And if Jesus has extraordinary compassion, why doesn't he just say, you come on, buddy? He says, no. No. You stay right here. Why? I meet Christians sometimes that say things like this. I can't go back and like see my old friends from high school or the old neighborhood. Because they would never recognize me. I'm such a different person. Exactly. Those were the people that needed to see the change. Why do I think that I'm going to get on a boat or a plane and go across the the, the ocean and, and have a greater impact on strangers when the people who live right here among me, if the change in my life is real, can see it? He tells this man, you stay right here. And we also learn the prerequisite to be an evangelistic. This man didn't know anything about the Messiah, the kingdom, the Old Testament, as far as I can tell, but he knew this. Jesus said, go home to your people and report what great things the Lord has done for you. Is there anybody here who can't do that? If you live your life in front of everybody and talk about what great things the Lord has done, maybe something will change for them. Could that ever work? I mean, could that ever work to take people who are so broken and just tell them to start talking about Jesus? Would it really change the world? Did you know in the book of Mark, Jesus comes back to this area of the Decapolis back in chapter, in chapter 7 around verse 31? He gets back to that region. Remember, they didn't want him in there. He left one preacher there. And when he gets back there in chapter 7, when you get to chapter 8, that's that same region, he feeds 4,000 people. Where did they come from? They got stirred up by a man with scars because he knew who the Lord was and what he'd done for him. I asked you a question at the beginning of the lesson. Why did Jesus take these guys across the sea for this event? tell you my answer. They needed to see this conversion. It's what I call a power conversion. All conversions are power conversions. But what I mean by this is, sometimes we have to see somebody be touched by the love of God and the word of God who we never thought would ever change. It'll light a fire under you. Maybe you know who this person is. But it ought to get us talking about the Lord. For me, it was Jenny Palumbo. My stepsister, when I graduated high school, my dad married, he moved across town. I had this new family. I didn't live with them, but Jenny, my sister, who's my age, when my dad married her mom, she was pregnant, not married. She'd been arrested for drugs and she was going through rehab. When she got out of rehab, I got to sit down and teach her this word. I didn't think she was going to change, but she did. She became a Christian. Her boyfriend, who we all thought she needed to get away from because that was her only hope. He decided to become a Christian, too. And it kind of freaked us all out because we thought he was going to mess her up. Then he joined the military. Oh, this is great news. I've seen the military eat seasoned Christians up. So these two go off. And I thought, well, that's it. heard a story about Kenny when he was in boot camp. The sergeant lined up all the privates in the in the barracks. And then he's going down the line. Was that you cursing in my barracks? Was that you cursing in my barracks? No, sir. No, sir. No, sir. They got to Kenny. For whatever reason, he paused at Kenny and he said, Was that you cursing in my barracks? And Kenny said, No, sir. He, and the, he said to him, Only him. How can I know it wasn't you? And Kenny said, Because I'm a Christian, sir. And Christians don't talk that way. I wouldn't have said that. And shame on me for thinking that God couldn't change Kenny. Kenny and Jenny still serve God. Tattoos from here to here. Because God can change anybody. Thanks for your attention.